1: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today.
0: Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And
1: me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Brought to you by the all new 2014 Toyota Corolla.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles Bryant. Chuckers, you might know him as. Sure. There's a W in there somewhere. Sure. For Wayne. Yeah. Named after uh Wayne Coyne. <laughs> right? No. We talked
3: about that before. Yeah, John Wayne. Right. Yeah. Uh how are you doing? I'm great, man. Um, I am all over this NASA activity. Oh yeah? Yeah. Good. It seems like all we hear about NASA these days is how they're having to shut down uh, space programs, right? But that's, they do other stuff, which is cool.
2: Well, that's the impression I have is that they're kind of taking their um, their field of vision yeah. out into outer space and turning it planetward toward Earth. Why not? That's where all the people are that are buying Big Macs, right? Well, if if space exploration is going private, you got uh, the Elon Musk's, sure and the uh, Richard Bransons of the world saying, we got this, NASA. Yeah. You go do something else with all of your high-tech remote sensing equipment. Right. Then it makes sense that NASA would say, okay, we'll become the watchdog guardian of the planet. And that's what they've become. Plus, also, if you're the United States, using NASA's remote sensing equipment on Earth is a dynamite cover for intelligence gathering. Oh, yeah? Well, yeah. I mean, you have all sorts of satellites Carrying out different functions, but really, all of them are taking pictures of the Earth 24-7. Oh, I got Highly you. detailed ones, too. Huh. You want to know about uh, Russian troop formation? Ask NASA. Yeah. you the know the
3: guys wh- of sniffing out a volcano.
2: Sure. If you want to know what kind of sandwich uh, Julian Assange had today,
3: ask NASA. Well, they don't need NASA. Everyone knows that. What? Tuna
2: fish. Is that what his thing is? Sure every day that's how he keeps his white mane white him and uh, <laughs> Okaku. yeah
3: the white mullet actually uh, it's not so mullety it's just more of a mane right mane yeah for sure both of them have a mane a big helmet of hair so chuck um
2: i th- i guess the question we've posed today that i feel like we need to answer is can nasa predict natural disasters i think we can go ahead and answer and say not yet Right, <laughs> but now that again they've kind of mothballed space exploration to an extent. I mean, we're still hitting Mars. Yeah, yeah, we're not. They're not mothballing it. But they're they're they've reached the point where they're like, okay, we've got all this really good equipment. Let's start monitoring Earth a little more because there's a lot of questions we have. That's right. Um, now they've reached this point where, s- since the beginning of the 21st century, they've started conducting missions. They have planned ones that are just being. S- started now uh-huh. some that are coming in the next couple of years and from all this data they'll be able to analyze it and start to be able to predict natural disasters right so they have this whole like toolbox i guess if you wanted to go into like corporate buzz speak yeah of of programs and missions that they're carrying out that will help them predict natural disasters pretty soon that's right not the
3: low-hanging fruit <laughs> right <laughs> They're just trying to reach out and play together with the Earth in the same uh, in the same space. Yeah, in the same space. Maybe Java Storm. Boy, the corporate talk. Whew. Yeah, we shun that at all costs here. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so let's talk about this. We talked about remote sensing, that is um, basically detecting energy reflecting from something um, it, when it's pointed out in space, like when you're looking for new planets. It's Point it out in space. When you point it on Earth, it's a heck of a lot closer. Right. So and, you can get more detail.
2: And they're, they're using different kinds of um, detectors. They're detecting different kinds of energy, I should say, like microwave radiation, x-rays. It's not just like using your peepers. Right. That information can be translated into something we use our peepers to look at. But for, they, they, they can use this equipment to sense all sorts of different stuff.
3: Yeah. And like you said, it's, um, it's like mounted on aircraft or it's part of a satellite or is a satellite. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's all up there looking back at you right now.
2: Yeah. So wave.
3: Yeah. Or it's looking at the earth. We're, we're just the insignificant tiny specks right crawling around on the earth yeah
2: yeah and this is this is a kind of a big deal you know like the, it makes sense it's sensible what they're doing it's a smart thing to do with nasa's sure. equipment yeah but it it also really is um we're at the threshold of like a really big change in our understanding of our planet yeah you know like i think there's kind of a lot of assumptions that people make about our understanding of the planet that are just totally incorrect like for example i would have guessed that meteorologists and climatologists knew how tropical storms form. Yeah. They do not. Yeah. Uh, And from using things like, uh, well, there's actually a project that was carried out in the summer of 2010 um, that was dedicated to studying this. It was called uh, GRIP, Genesis and Rapid Intensification Processes. That's right. And for a a couple of months, some NASA scientists flew around on a Gulfstream jet and took really precise measurements of what they believed were the beginnings of tropical storms to see how they form exactly.
3: Yeah. And the, the goal with pretty much everything that we're going to talk about today is early detection because you can't stop a hurricane. You can't stop a volcano or an earthquake, but like you, the old saying goes. That's right. But if you know it's coming, then, uh, you can get people out of the way. You can thwart. Some of them to some degree.
2: Yeah. Like anybody can point to a hurricane and be like, oh, there's a hurricane.
3: Yeah. By then, it's a little
2: too late. If exactly. you can point to the very beginnings, the cradle of the hurricane, the formation of a tropical storm, now you're talking about time that you have to warn people, like, you guys need to get out of here.
3: Yeah. Uh, and there is one really cool program they've had going since 2002 called uh, GRACE. Uh, there's going to be a lot of acronyms today, by the way. I love those. Love them. Um the uh, gravity recovery and climate experiment.
2: This is my favorite one.
3: It's it's really cool. Basically, what they're doing. All right. Well, let's step back a minute. Let's talk about Newton. Okay. Gravity depends on the mass of an object. Right. In the case of polar ice caps, the mass is changing. So, if the mass is changing, mm-hmm. the gravity is changing.
2: Right. So, when when the polar ice caps melt and turn to water and then flow toward the equator, mm-hmm. um, they are often so big that they left it in depression on the Earth's surface. Once they're gone, that depression can be filled in, the mantle can fill back in in that area, changing the mass in that particular part of Earth and hence changing the gravity,
3: right? Yeah, it's, uh, one estimate has between 2010 and 2011, um, the Greenland ice shield lost 224 gigatons of mass. So not only is that going to change the land formation and the mass, it's going to make the sea level rise, uh, at a rate of about 0. 0.7 millimeters a year. Mm-hmm. That's going to change the makeup of the earth. Yep. Um, and so they have a couple of buddies, Tom and Jerry. Yeah. That are in orbit, uh, satellites, twin satellites, about 136 miles apart from each other. Do you know why they're called Tom and Jerry? Because they're chasing each other. They only,
2: on, <laughs> yeah. they're on the same orbit. Yeah, exactly. A polar orbit. Yeah, it's very cute. So they're constantly going from the north pole to the south pole, um, as the Earth spins below them, right? That's right. And um, they're taking uh, the, they're they're taking measurements, two different types of measurements, but they're precisely separated from one another, and they're on precisely the same orbit. Yeah. So they can really, what they produce every thirty days is a full map of the gravitational field of Earth.
3: Yeah, and they've uh, NASA. They always work with other people, it seems like, which is a good thing to work with people around the world. Mm-hmm. But they worked with uh, a company in Germany to develop um, an ultra-precise distance measuring system that basically can measure within the precision what they say is one-tenth of the width of a hair. That's pretty precise. Yeah. So basically, these things are flying, uh, and between the two, they're measuring the distances and discrepancies between these two identical twin satellites, and that's information is being relayed back and analyzed
2: yeah because the upside of this is number one the earth is not a perfect sphere we know that I can't remember what we talked about that in oh maps
3: yeah it's a potato
2: yeah And the uh, the gra- the gravitational field is not perfectly round either it, it's lower in some places higher in other places the force of gravity yeah um so yeah it's formed what in 1995 was coined the potsdam gravity potato <laughs> And if you look it up now, there's some pretty cool um, artist rendering of what the Earth's magnetic field looks like in a, as a three-dimensional model. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, so check that out, and that's been uh, updated dramatically in the last couple of years thanks to this GRACE project.
3: Yeah, and the, the ultimate goal basically is to uh, measure this gravitational field over time, see how it's changing with mm-hmm. kind of accuracy we've never had before, which will in turn inform us on climate-related uh, junk. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and is it just a
2: correlation between like ice caps melting and a change in a gravitational field? Or does right. that ice cap melting tr- trigger that change in the gravitational field, which in turn has some other effects? So um there there's a lot of, I think, understanding we can gain from knowing what the gravitational field is changing, how it's changing.
3: Yeah. Uh, do you like using your GPS to get somewhere? Mm-hmm. Well, then do. this kind of information can go on to help GPS because basically it's just going to improve the trajectories of these uh, satellites. And everything is just more specific. It's like a 100 times um, more uh, detailed than they've ever had before. So that's going to help everything out from detecting climate change or temperature and and like potential hurricanes and stuff to mm-hmm. like getting you to McDonald's.
0: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
1: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it.
1: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you ride the books, Gene, and Vlastar runs business. I understand now. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage
3: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Uh, by the way, Chuck, um, the uh, the tropical storms. You want to know how they think they form now? Um, no. Well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so the speed of waves on an ocean, uh-huh. um, if it matches the speed of the movement of some uh, air above it, uh-huh. and an umbilical cord of Warm, humid air can get into this little pillow sandwich. Uh-huh. It forms this protective <laughs> pouch. Uh-huh. And from there, a uh, convection current can start oh. and form into a tropical storm, which can then form into a hurricane. Huh. That's what they learned from the GRIP program. Man, it seems like
3: they would have known that stuff. Before then.
2: You'd think so. You know? But we're talking like 2010 when they're, they're – yeah. I, I don't even think it's been proven. I think that that's what they think based on the data from the 2010 experiment.
3: Yeah, aren't they still uh, analyzing that stuff? Mm-hmm. All right. I
2: imagine like that's got to be a pretty good field to get into now and in the next like five, ten years, analyzing NASA data.
3: Yeah, and just anything to do with the climate probably. Sure. Don't you think?
2: Yeah, things that's changing. It's going to be gangbusters. There's
3: a lot of money in the weather. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, all right, so that's tropical storms and hurricanes.
2: We didn't talk about the GPM project.
3: Oh, that's true. Um, yeah, that they're working with, um, NASA's working with Japan and their NASA, which is called the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, and that is a global precipitation measurement. And they are using satellites to observe all kinds of uh, (laughs) precipitation patterns Mm -hmm. all over the world. And basically, like, before we could only place these things in certain spots that were easier to get to, and you can't place them out over the ocean, and you can't place them in the Andes because it's too rocky. Mm -hmm. This allows us to study the entire globe. Right. For the first time.
2: So they're following, they're basically tracking the movement of water around the planet on like a daily, a seasonal, a yearly basis. Um, and what they hope to be able to gain from this is to predict when floods happen, because apparently a major flood happens every day around the Earth. Oh, really? Yeah. And a lot of times those floods lead to landslides. Uh-huh. We saw firsthand in Guatemala what happens when a landslide comes down, remember?
3: Oh, yeah, we were standing there. And they said this is literally 12 feet higher than it was.
2: Yeah, we were standing on the remains of a village that got caught in the middle of the night. And there there were people down there still.
3: Yeah, you could still see the swath that had been cut through the Mm -hmm. the jungle and the mountainside.
2: Right. So they're hoping, okay, well, if we can figure out when a flood's coming, we can predict landslides in turn. So by tracking global precipitation, that's what they're hoping to be able to do with that.
3: Yeah, they're also using uh, uh, LIDAR, the LIDAR. Surface topography system
2: this is my second favorite one.
3: the list one, yeah, um and they're uh, hopefully going to be able to track things like volcanoes, earthquakes, landslides, and erosion, but not wildfires, <laughs> no, not wildfires that's crazy talk <laughs> that is crazy talk,
2: but it's the same thing as uh with tracking precipitation as of two years ago we had to physically put some sensor somewhere, and there were places we just couldn't get to, yeah. And now that we have satellites, we can track that stuff. Same goes with this. Like we used to have to be able to find a fault line, put sensors there. Yeah. And then monitor that. Um, with with uh, the LIST program, with LIDAR, um, they're using lasers to monitor fault lines and find new ones that we didn't know were there before. Track their movement and then yeah. use those to predict earthquakes and then similarly predict volcanoes.
3: So listen to this. Okay. (laughs) The resolution now they have is a 5-meter horizontal resolution with a precision of 4 inches. Previously, the best data we could get was 30-meter resolution with a 32-foot precision. So it went from 32 feet to 4 inches. Right. That's pretty good. They'd be like, give or take 32 feet. (laughs) Yeah. Now it's give or take 4 inches. Yeah, with thanks to lasers. Yeah. So they could possibly detect volcanic activity before it happens.
2: Right. And the way that they're doing that, you would think, well, they're using thermal cameras. You'd be wrong. What they're doing is looking for land deformation. Uh, apparently, before a volcano goes off, that land around it literally deforms. It swells due to pressure. Yeah. And uh, since we are tracking topography now using this um, this program, we can say, oh, well, that that crater wasn't three times larger than it is now, right? Like a week ago, maybe a volcano is about to go off. <laughs> that's right,
3: uh, and it's not just volcanoes and natural disasters. They can also monitor erosion and topsoil loss. Basically, anything on the earth that's interesting, they can like really accurately, closely monitor now. Yeah. And this said, 2016 is it already underway? Um, no, it's 2013, Chuck. No, but it says it was going to launch in 2016, but is it, already, is it already going? No. Oh, okay.
2: I think it's launching in 2016 still.
3: Okay, so this is just the plan.
2: You're right. Yeah, no, they have a lot of, like, this just started. Okay. Like the, um, uh, I think it might have been the Grace Program. Yeah. Started in 2002, and it's been going on. It is the Grace Program, the one with Tom and Jerry, right? Yeah, that was
3: 2002.
2: Right, and it had its 10th anniversary in 2012. I think that might have been the first project like this. Right. And now NASA's throwing, like, everything into this stuff. And we're just at the at the forefront, at the very beginning of this kind of thing. This is a very timely episode, frankly.
3: <laughs> it is, actually. Um, they have, in fact, I think these new probes are even newer than the list program, right, that NASA's proposing to launch? The one
2: we were just talking about with the volcano deformation?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a pair of satellites that monitor little bitty changes in the surface. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess it's a funding thing because I don't think these two are even uh, – I think they're still just like in the proposition phase.
2: So I guess we should say like then they will be doing this. This is coming. Yeah. Like, and like this, this per- particular project.
3: Yeah, and the precipitation one is launches in February of next year. Yeah. So it sounds as though these things are already happening, but I think it's just like this is how it's going to work.
2: It sounds as though they're already happening because of us. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tents we're using. That's right. We're using present. We should be using future perfect.
3: One of the problems with the satellites, though, is um, and with lasers, is clouds. Right. Because clouds get in the way. It's got to be a clear day to use most of this stuff.
2: Uh, well, hold on. I know you love talking about clouds. I do, too. But before we go any further, what do you think uh, about a message break? Let's A new season
0: of Bridgerton is here.
1: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Jean. Eugene Fodor. Jean, we'll boot it.
1: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. I have last the business. I understand now, it's a wise man, Marie a wiser woman.
3: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so back to clouds. Right. They cause trouble with lasers and with satellites. Yeah. So you, you got to count on clear days, so it's not like these things are humming 24-7, 365.
2: No, weren't you surprised finding out that clouds are still an impediment to lasers? No. I would have thought, like, I mean, the projects we're talking about are still like, gee whiz, that... Can't you shoot through a cloud with yeah, a laser? Yeah, <laughs> I thought that it, it just seemed kind of like, well, what are you guys going to do about that? Because that's a pretty big obstacle. Yeah, I guess you're right.
3: Yeah. Maybe they could uh, have an anti-seeding program Oh yeah, to disperse clouds.
2: Nice. Um, so, Chuck, NASA doesn't need to turn its back fully on space. Like we said, it's still carrying out the Mars mission. Um, what was after that? Are they going to Saturn? I don't know. Saturn... Uranus, maybe? Yeah. They're they're exploring some moon. I can't remember what's what. They haven't turned their back on space. And they don't need to because there's a huge threat from space bearing down on us constantly.
3: That's right. Near-Earth objects. Right.
2: Which I feel like we should do uh, a podcast just on near-Earth objects. So
3: how detailed do you want to get here, then?
0: Eh,
2: Some. Medium. Sure.
3: (laughs) Go watch the movie Armageddon. All right. Done. Yeah. Uh, Although that is... Deep impact in Armageddon were both, um, while fanciful, not too far off in that there are objects that come near the Earth. And we think if we can detect them soon enough that there is existing technology now that can throw these things off course.
2: Right. And Earth is constantly being bombarded every day about 100, t- 100 tons of material. A lot like rain down on the earth, yeah. We're talking little particles, things that break up in the atmosphere. Um, yeah, mostly
3: like comet dust and stuff, right?
2: Right. Um, but there are, uh, NASA estimates about a thousand objects that could collide with Earth that are a kilometer or more in diameter, that's 0.62 miles in diameter. And that if any one of these impacted Earth, which yeah. they do about every 10,000 years, it would be what's called a global catastrophe.
3: Actually, good news, buddy. What? That is every several hundred thousand years. Oh, man. Okay, um,
2: so what comes down every 10,000 years?
3: About every 10,000 years, asteroids um, larger than about a 100 meters could hit the Earth, and that would just be like a local disaster.
2: So it would be like a one the size of a football field.
3: Yeah, and that, I mean, that's not great if you're near it, uh-huh. but it's not like a, uh, what they would call a global disaster, like the end of the world type scenario.
2: And that's one that's like a kilometer in diameter.
3: Yeah, right? and it says every several hundred thousand years or so. I feel a lot better, so Thank yeah. you. Yeah. What are the chances that that's going to happen in the next like 40 years? I don't know. Aren't we like
2: on a, when was the last one? It was about t- a quarter of a million years ago, wasn't it? I don't know. Was it the one that formed the uh, Chicha Club? crater? I don't think I pronounced that <laughs>
3: correctly, but you know what I'm talking about people who are familiar with that? I do. Or they do. But the point is, we need a lead time on this stuff.
2: Chi Ch- Ch- club? <laughs> the Chiqui club? It's a there's an x in there, but it's a it's it's in Mesoamerica so the x is like a hawk. Oh, it's pronounced Cthulhu. <laughs> no. No. It was close. Okay. The Ch- Oaxaca. It's, it's like that. Uh-huh. But there's a chi and I believe a club afterwards, so I'm just going to say Chi Club <laughs> Crater. Okay. But I think that was longer ago than 100,000 years ago, The extinction event. So you're crater. saying we're,
3: we're due? Yes. Okay. Well, the good news is if we have a little bit of lead time, like a few years, supposedly there are things that we can do to knock these uh, asteroids off course. Like what? Well, one is using nuclear fission weapons. You set it off And the the trick is you don't want to blow this thing up.
2: No, because then you might have a lot of problems.
3: Yeah, that's even worse. But um, it would just set it off course. And even if you set something off course by a few millimeters over the course of years, that could be enough. Sure. So it's not like they're looking to knock it miles away or anything. Right. Although in the movies, that's how they do it. Yeah. In the movies, that's how they did do it, I think.
2: Of course, we may mine them, which we talked about. Yeah, asteroid mining. Sure. Um and tracking these things has actually become something of a crowdsource thing there's uh NASA has this um all sky fireball network
3: <laughs> that sounds so not
1: real
2: yeah but it is it's a real program they have yeah. where they have cameras that are connected to the internet that are constantly filming the night sky most of them are along the eastern seaboard we got one here in Georgia yeah and Alabama has them Tennessee uh-huh. um they they're grouped in clusters um, and actually, if you want to propose your location as a, a place to host one of these cameras, typically they're, uh, like on schools or things like that. Oh, really? Yeah, you can, um, you can submit an application. And if there's, there's really just like four criteria. It's like there can't be a lot of light pollution or a light nearby.
3: Yeah, that rules me out.
2: You have to be able to, um, you have to be cl- connected to the internet. Yeah, that there's, rules me out. Like a couple of, <laughs> there's a couple of <laughs> other things. Um, but it's it's like you can get a camera set up and, and be part of the all-sky fireball network.
3: That's pretty cool. I think the plan is to eventually have uh, 15 of these in place and, um, I guess, tracking fireballs.
2: Yeah, which are good good things to keep tabs on for sure.
3: You got anything else? No, that's all the news about NASA. <laughs> I wish NASA would sponsor us, man. That would be awesome. Yeah. Like, talk, I... talk about someone we could uh, stump for. NASA, yeah, sure. Let's let's do it.
2: NASA, what's your problem? You really? guys have deep pockets. Yeah. Uh, let's see. If you want to know more about NASA, you can type that word into the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. It'll bring up a bunch of articles. We love NASA here at How Stuff Works and stuff you should know. Um, and since I said handy search bar, Chuck, it's time for listener mail. Straight to listener mail. Yeah. Oh, do you hear that chime?
3: Man. (laughs) It's like 2009. All right. Dear guys and Jerry, I just got home from another eight hour car trip with my hubby, during which we binge listened to stuff you should know. Yeah. Uh, This has been our car trip ritual for about a year now. We actually moved to Atlanta, uh, Kennesaw, last August, (laughs) and we make pretty frequent trips to our hometown of St. Louis. Uh,
2: That's a long car trip. Yeah,
3: it sure is. I wonder if they know that. You can fly there really quickly. (laughs) Um, He introduced me to the podcast on our first trip down here, and I have to admit, I didn't have much hope. I'm a ballet teacher who loves arts and fiction and long hours with Netflix, and he is a self-taught programmer who loves biographies and doing math for fun in his free time. So when he told me uh, what the show was, I was thinking, great, I'm going to feel dumb and bored, but we gave it a try anyway. I also have to admit, and this one is kind of funny, after listening to one or two episodes, uh, I told him I didn't like it. He, not understanding how that was possible, asked me why not, and I said, dude, it's so condescending that the way they ask each other questions and converse as if they don't already know what the other person's going to say. As if. He sniffed me off the case right away, she says. She's a true fan. Yeah. By saying, I don't think that's fake. I think they really don't write out a full script ahead of time.
2: Believe it or not. He's right.
3: He's right. Believe it or not, that changed everything, which might seem silly, but I bet you listened to a past episode. And imagine it was totally scripted and rehearsed. You'd see what I mean. Uh, Now I recommend it to everyone.
2: I can't even conceive of how we would be able to generate the level of clumsiness that we rise to (laughs) every episode. You couldn't write that.
3: Yeah. Uh, So thanks, guys, for putting out a very entertaining program for people of all ages to enjoy and for being less sad than this American life, (laughs) which we also love. But sometimes we just don't have enough tissue and emotional resolve to listen to it. That is from Amber and Ben. Studebaker. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Amber and Ben. Hey there.
2: Uh, if you're on one of your road trips, drive safe. And drive safe to everybody out there who's listening <laughs> on a road trip or on a long haul or uh, on an airplane, whatever. If you're listening to us right now and you're traveling, I hope it's a nice time. Agreed. Uh, if you want to tell us about those travels, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. Um, you can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us a, an email yeah, yeah. to at discovery.com And you can uh, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
3: Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla.
2: Fill the grill and fire up the party. Get the Weber Sear Wood Pellet Grill. Smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. Go from low and slow on smoke boost mode at 180 degrees all the way to high heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full grate sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame, and food will look as good as it tastes. This grill is hot in 15 minutes, and cleanup is easy. You'll cook on two levels at the same time, so you can make enough for everyone. And you can add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert. So get fired up for your new Weber searwood pellet grow.